Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. We'll be having an all new conversation with a guest on the second half of the show. But first, I wanted to do a review of the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Vander Kolk, K-O-L-K. I've seen this book around, it was published in 2014. And it made sense to me, but I just had never had a chance to read it until last week. It is all about trauma and how that is kept inside your body. I actually have to say, hmm, it's one of the it's one of the first really deep dives into PTSD and CPTSD, which is for childhood PTSD or chronic PTSD. Vander Kolk is an early noticer, diagnostician of PTSD, and made sure that it made its way into the Diagnostic Manual of the American Psychiatry Association. Has a lot of sort of background stuff on it. The cons, I think, are what I'm going to talk about first. He talks a lot about the body being where these triggering memories are stored and about the process of the body taking them in and how your conscious mind may have outgrown the need for your body to respond in the way that it does, but it still does it. The thing is, I guess I would have thought there'd be like a lot more about the body itself and figuring out ways around it. A lot of this book is what PTSD is like a lot of the book. So if you already know that, you can skim like a fair amount from this book. That's the first thing to be aware of. The second thing is I found this book to be a heavy lift. Important, good work, glad to know it. But just psychologically for me, really weighty. It was story after story after story of human beings in extraordinary amounts of distress that lasted over decades for them. It was, there's a lot that's just, a lot of stories are just sad and awful and just at the very edges of what people can take and, you know, feeling people who needed a certain kind of help that was not forthcoming, and then they feel like they're broken for years. And I mean, the good part of this is eventually they found their way into this guy's practice and that of his colleagues, and they were able to get some relief and some release from this. But man, the stories. And I ended up just sort of feeling, I don't, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not surrounded by these stories all the time. And once I'm on like number 10, I just felt wrung out. Like these were just so sad. And I, you know, I don't work in any area where I would have this be my daily burden, I guess. So I found that really tough going. And then on page 283, Vander Kolk is doing a an exercise in a training thing for EMDR, which is, he's really a proponent and sort of an early adopter of EMDR. Eye movement, EMD, 
eye movement. I don't know. It's an eye mo- desensitization R, whatever that is, response, something. So EMDR is a very, very effective and just very cool treatment for PTSD. And in EMDR, you instruct the person to go through a triggering kind of memory, and then you move something in front of their eyes, or you can also stimulate like the palms of the hands or people can tap, whatever it is, something that will go across the body because across the body is across the brain. And when you do that, it allows you to walk through a triggering memory and lessen the trigger. And you can do that a number of times until it becomes a very sad story but not one that causes you to drop into fight or flight. And I'll talk about that in a second with, with the chemicals that happen and flood your body, which is why you want to do this work if you have a background where it would be helpful. Anyway, page 283, he's practicing this new training that he's doing. And he said to the instructor that the guy he was working with didn't want to tell, didn't want to narrate the origin story of his distress. He had a triggering event and he wanted to work on it, but he did not want to do what the instructions usually are, which is talk to the therapist about, you know, what it is, describe it. It's an interesting request because I've actually experienced this where I don't have necessarily language or a narrative to describe it. It can be an incredibly hard ask for someone to put all this stuff into words, especially if some of the stuff was prelingual. Some of the memories are prelingual. It's really hard to do. Anyway, the guy that he was working with actually told him, I don't like you and I don't want to talk about this with you, but I do want to do the training. And so he fixed it in his mind, fixed what, you know, the event that he wanted to work on. This is the, you know, student in this case, the the colleague. And then Vander Kolk did EMDR with him. And the guy sort of had this realization about something and everything changed. And he was like, oh my God, I feel so much better. I figured stuff out. Wow. And like that, and that is the feeling when, when this does effective work, you just go, wow. Okay. So Vanderkolk wanted him to keep going and explain everything. And he didn't. This guy was like, I'm going to leave you unsatisfied. I'm not going to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. So great boundaries from this guy. Vanderkolk turned around to the instructor when they were doing a debrief and talked about how much it bothered him that this guy didn't want to tell the story, didn't want to talk about the afterwards, whatever. And the instructor said, you're very focused on these trauma stories. And I'm wondering if that's something that's really a need of yours and not necessarily a need of the person you're working with. And suddenly I thought, page 283 of this book. I wish he had put this in the foreword. I wish he'd put this in the introduction. I would have been so much happier with this book if the author had said, I love these appallingly sad stories of people, and I'm going to go into great detail about them. But at least on page 283, I finally got it and was like, okay, okay. So a lot of these examples are because the guy writing this loves it. So... Those are my caveats. Not enough about the actual body and how it, what it's doing to keep the score and how to let it release that. 
this is really the last, I'd say the last quarter of the book, he finally kind of goes and does some stuff about that and, and points people in other directions. EMDR is fantastic. EMDR is not always enough. And there's other tools that can help. So he also, he talks about this internal family systems where you name all the different voices that are telling you things, like if there's a negative voice or if there's a voice that is telling you you should do something. I ran into this in the improv classes I take where they say, well, anybody that, like when you hear that little voice telling you you should and shouldn't do something, you should name it. You should. (laughs) Anytime you have that, it's helpful to name it. Feel free to call it something that you don't like so you can shut it down and tell it to shut up or go away. Just name it and point to it and acknowledge it. In internal family systems, they actually name a whole cast of characters. Like there's somebody that's protecting. There's somebody, there's a voice that is managing. There's a voice that might be sort of punishing. There's a exiled sort of part of of you or your internal landscape that was told to shut it down and not be fully you. So when you name them, you often will say, okay, that sounds very critical. Let's have that critical person back off and go into another room. So it's almost like, I don't know if you just made finger puppets of each one, but you sent them off. And then that's my understanding of it from this book. So that's one one thing that he recommends. Another one was sort of a drama version of this. that was kind of interesting where it's an approach by someone named Pesso, P-E-S-S-O, I think, because I kept thinking pesto. It was a former dancer. And they had like you arrange a cast of characters in a group. It has to be done in a group. And or I guess you could do it with furniture or something where you'd sort of arrange that this person represents this or this, you know, chair represents this and then kind of different ways. It has to be done with a therapist and, and it's sort of a whole thing. So that was one of them. And then biofeedback and neurofeedback, which are another physical approach to trauma. And the reason that I wanted more about the physicality about all this is because the way that trauma, trauma works, you, you, your body goes into fight or flight or freeze. Those are the typical ones for a trauma response. There's a fourth one, fawn. But what happens is when you're in those states, Fight, flight, freeze, fawn, or any combination of those states. Your brain has a whole pathway of what your options are, and and it is affected by a huge flood of brain chemicals, like adrenaline. That's what lets you fight. That's what lets you flight. When those events happened, your brain flooded. That's that's how you stay away from being eaten by a lion in the wild. You knew to run, or if you froze, you might get injured, or whatever it is. Those are how your responses go, and your whole system floods with these chemicals. You Your brain uh, makes certain changes. For example, it's very hard to see the big picture when you're in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. But your brain, your visual field narrows because there's this huge perceived threat. It's a shorthand version, but that's what's happening when you have a triggering event. And what's really, really 
wild about the human brain is you can replicate that at any time. So, a trigger warning, I'm going to pick a, what I think is a fairly mild version of this, which is a fight with or, or a, a, an unpleasant interaction with a boss or a teacher where you had a response where you wanted to get out or you froze, couldn't believe they had said this or you got angry. Someone you really dislike or who you perceive really dislikes you. And this doesn't have to be traumatic. This can be anything that's happened, right? Just think of some time when you were with somebody in an interaction and this other person was really hostile to you and you just a person you do not like that does not like you. You had, when you dealt with them, you had a chemical reaction to that person. You had adrenaline in your body. You had cortisol in your body. The really amazing part of the human brain is when you think about that person now, when you remember that event, you can create, recreate, in fact, you do recreate the same chemical flood that you did in the original event, or at least a pretty near substitute for it. When you think about how angry you got, you do release a little bit of adrenaline and cortisol. What happens in PTSD is that happens all the time. And it used to happen in response to a dangerous situation, in which case it was actually helpful to you. And later on, it happens inappropriately or almost chronically, compulsively, in places where that survival system is no longer needed. And it is bad for your health to have cortisol and adrenaline in particular flooding you over long periods of time. You're supposed to be saving it for those times when you are being chased by a lion. And if you're in situations where something enormous has happened and you're triggered a lot, your brain will do that same thing that it does when you think about that old teacher or that old boss where you just flood with the same chemicals. They're not even here anymore. That's really what it means when people say someone is taking up a lot of rent in your head. You can recreate all of your feelings about this person just by remembering how awful dealing with them was. So if you imagine doing that all the time about loads of stuff. That is what PTSD and then, of course, chronic or childhood CPS, CPTSD is. So anything you can do to make it so that when you remember the huge event that triggered PTSD or even things like when you think about that boss or teacher that made life terrible for you for a time, Anything you can do to reduce the response that you have to it, any strong responses. And in fact, you can do some of this for yourself. You can kind of tap on both sides of your body when you think about them. And you can do a little bit. Of, you can look it up on YouTube and various ways to self-comfort. Anything that finally gets you to a place where you just sort of think, I've known some real jerks in my time, but you don't have an elevated heart rate. You don't keep thinking about that. It doesn't make you mad anymore. It just makes you a little sad that you had to waste any time with them and glad that they're no longer in your life. That's what we're going for. We're going for almost this zen-like, 
oh, stuff happens. That is the healthy position. That's the healthy state of mind to be in. What's interesting about the body keeps the score is that it becomes really clear from just the sheer amount of research that's been done on the brain and the body. We can't fake it. And a lot of people try to fake it. They say, okay, well, I'm not, I don't dwell on that anymore. That's not a thing, but it is for some of them. The fact that you say it doesn't bother you anymore isn't enough. It has to really, truly not bother you anymore. And beyond that, similar events, similar things have to not bother you anymore, not trigger rage. Rage that you had in response to, I mean, the the classic for PTSD uh, is a war situation where the rage and fear, well, really, it's first the fear of dying, followed by rage that the situation is happening and the adrenaline that may help you. Rage can help you in a battle situation. Having that happen when there are fireworks, having that happen when balloons pop in the next room, that is not an appropriate use of the system. And what's happened is the difficulty of the event, the seriousness of the event has hijacked the system, making regular pleasures and non-events into flooding your system with cortisol, with adrenaline, with unhealthy chemicals that it made itself in response. So in general, it is a good book. I appreciated it a lot. I, I actually, once I got to page 283 and was like, oh, fine. So this is a, this is this guy's thing. I found it a much lighter read and I might read it again, knowing that he's way more into these stories than I am and I don't really have to read them. But the other thing is, of course, these are things that, these are events, uh, triggering events, PTSD triggering events are things that occur to all of us. Everyone around you has had serious events. Maybe they go into full-blown PTSD where it really affects, negatively affects their current life. Maybe it doesn't. But with statistics about rape and sexual assault and domestic violence, it's happened to the majority of people around you, the majority of people that you know, if it hasn't happened to you as well. And so an awareness that there are these ways of treating it is really valuable. And I think just as much, if not, yeah, I think just as much for me, is an understanding of the pathways of the brain. And honestly, the good news that that's not permanent or terminal. You're not at the mercy of your brain chemicals. You're not at the mercy of your responses. In fact, especially for people who have this as a long-time struggle, something where they had where they were not calmly cared for or nurtured, had attachment issues with parents. Well, it sounds like it's a kid's fault, where parents had attachment issues with children and therefore did not care for them in the ways that children really need to be cared for to become healthy, functionally calm adults. We we can name, I'm sure, real quick, lots of people that we know where this is the case. That is an ongoing health issue. 
And to know that it doesn't have to be that way, to know that there are ways that the brain can also heal, to know that there are ways that like we it was legitimate when we had that first event event or series of events or years of events if it was childhood. There were really legitimate reasons that our body behaved that way to that stimulus. Those stimuluses are no longer here. But what's incredibly cool about the human mind and the brain and the brain-body connection is that we're not condemned to relive that for the rest of our lives. If we want to become more healthy, if we want to reduce those floods that happen, if we want to take better care of our health, if we honestly, if we want better relationships with the people around us, we can do that. Because ever since those first times that we had that flooding, the, the repeat ones have all been a narrative our brain told itself, a familiar pathway that our brain used to respond to things that feel like other things. By the way, this is a feature, not a bug. The brain knows that a cup is something that you drink from fairly early on. If you, anybody that's ever been with a baby knows that. Now it can know that a mug is something that you drink from and a can and a bottle. And it, it already categorizes things to be very much like other things. So knowing that that's how the brain is built and knowing that whole deal of like, well, you want to run away from something that's threatening or you might freeze and hope it goes by you. All of those things are ways that our brain knows what to do. PTSD, CPS, CPTSD are almost like when you have an allergy, one of the weird things about an allergy is that it's your body overreacting to what it should be doing anyway, because the thing that causes an allergy isn't pollen, it's your immune system going into overdrive in response to pollen. So PTSD is your brain and your body going into overdrive in response to something that looks like the original situation or set of situations. It's not, if, if you were being chased by a lion, go ahead, freeze, fight, flee, fawn if you have some steak around. Whatever you want to be able to do to get away from that lion is appropriate at this moment. The thing about PTSD is that you are responding inappropriately because you're responding to what seems similar to an old situation. And that can be rewired. It's actually one of the nicest things in the world to know is that the brain that could learn it in the first place can unlearn and relearn and modify itself to no longer respond in those ways. But you do have to do the work and the work is hard and it's very sad. A lot of times the work goes around this fear that we have of fully processing the original traumas in order to accept them, fully accept them, fully accept helplessness, fully accept a lack of love, fully accept an attack and be okay with who we are afterwards as a result. And the book is super helpful because it does explain, first of all, the history of understanding PTSD. And it's got a long history. Actually, I've got a little footnote on that in a second. But it also just gives you this insight into how people developed the understanding that this was happening. And then, more importantly, treatments that make it so that in the future, the triggers are reduced 
or eliminated completely. And people can now, in a very healthy way, continue living their lives. Nobody should be stuck in the past and flooding your system with panic hormones is avoidable. You can learn not to do that, which is fantastic. So here's a little footnote, and I've known most of this for a long time. I actually didn't realize it had to do specifically really with PTSD. I have a problem with Sigmund Freud. Freud discovered or was part of a group that rediscovered PTSD. He was writing about, and in 1896, I think it was, wrote that all of these mental illnesses that he was dealing with, like the vast majority, were trauma responses. And he was working with a lot of people who had been in the military, a lot of people who had been in life or death situations. And then here's the part that I did know. He also worked with a lot of women who had been assaulted frequently by family members. And here's where Freud suddenly becomes garbage to me. He believed them for years and did real work and started real work on acknowledging and healing and making the world a better place. But it began to dawn on him that he knew the men who were attacking these women when they were children, and that included his own father. And he was so horrified that he knew them and that he might even be related to them that he turned around and betrayed all of his vulnerable patients. And he created the insanity that is the Oedipal complex that no one thinks applies to anyone. It's, it is a garbage, victim-blaming fantasy that's incredibly harmful. And he made that a focus of his life from then on in order to protect people that prey on children, predators. And Sigmund Freud did that and should be eternally ashamed for that because he made it so that there was now a scientific sort of looking support for this predatory behavior. And he pushed back the cause of really helping people by decades, in particular, really helping women and children. And I think it's something that, frankly, it's to me that undoes basically most of his legacy. I don't know. You know, I always love a good redemption story. Like I, I love, a, I love a story where somebody came up with a whole thing that turned out to be very, very wrong, recognized how wrong they were, changed their mind and made some kind of effort to undo the damage they did. I don't even know what to tell you about Freud because he did the opposite. And I think that is just then he's a garbage person whose name should not be remembered for basically anything. So The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. I think I've got his name right. I don't know if I said it correctly before. And let me know what you think. Next up, we're talking with artist and photographer Matthew Cavanaugh. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. 
today I have with me Matthew Cavanaugh, a photographer, and we're going to talk about work, community, and creativity. How are you doing, Matthew? Good, Janet. How are you doing today? Great. Great. Now, one of the really interesting things is I met you as a photographer, and I meet a lot of people who want to be photographers, and I'm really curious how you came to do that work. Well... I started, you know, when I was a kid, I got into it. I found an old camera in the, the attic that belonged to my father when he was in the army. And I, I don't think it was actually functioning. It was, it was a, it was a, uh, just something that he had held on to a, an, an S, a 35 millimeter SLR. And I got in, you know, I just was fascinated by it. And he said, you know, you can play with that. So I played with it and kind of pretended to be a photographer, even though it didn't have any film in it and it didn't, and it wasn't even functioning. And then, uh, you know, I begged my parents for a camera and, uh, they got me a little 110 Instamatic and I tried to do backyard bird photography with that. And, uh, the results were not spectacular. So then I kept bugging them for a, a quote unquote real camera, which, which in my case was a, a 35 millimeter SLR. And eventually I just, you know, got, got, they, they, you know, they broke down and, and bought it for me. So I did photography. I went to high school in the, in the eighties and it was all film. And, you know, I, I did, uh, photos for the school newspaper and I did photos for the yearbook and I interned for a, a photographer in town, West Springfield, Mass, where I grew up. And a guy named Walt Steinmetz, who uh, was sort of the town photographer, he did a lot of, he did all the yearbook photos and et cetera. And he was very encouraging. And I kind of did a little kind of paid internship with him. Oh, cool. Did you do the whole, like, develop your own film and everything too during those years? Yep. I had a dark room. There was a dark room at school that we use. And I, and I also built one in my, um, or I built one is is kind of a an exaggeration. I I made one uh, happen in my in my basement on my father's tool bench. So we basically just blacked out the small uh, cellar windows, <laughs> and uh, it was dark enough to make prints, especially at night. <laughs> wow! So we could we could do printing and developing, and a couple friends of mine and I used to do the. We had our own little photography club, unofficial photography club, where we would take black and white film, Tri-X mostly, Kodak Tri-X, and, and we would, uh, you know, photograph each other and, you know, goofy stuff and just walk around, explore various things and and just play with it. And it was a lot of fun. And that's and that's how I started. And my, strangely enough, my, my uncle, my uncle Pete, Pete Connors was the uh, English teacher slash photography teacher at uh, West Springfield High School. And he, the, the funny story about that is that my uncle taught the class, but he still gave me a C because I was basically <laughs> a, a terrible student. <laughs> so the C was like a gift, you know, and he likes to take credit for, uh, for all my success because it was like tough love or something. <laughs> oh, that's very Irish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, we still laugh about that whenever I see him. <laughs> so was it kind of a straight line? Did you do photography in college too? 
kind of a straight line. I went to GCC, so I moved to Greenfield after high school. I was, as I mentioned, I was not a good student. I had pretty poor grades. Also didn't have a lot of money. So a counselor at my high school recommended that I check out GCC for their art program and that I could take photography classes there. And uh, sure enough, I went up and visited the school and, you know, applied and, and I ended up taking what I, the, I majored in graphic design and I got an associate's degree in graphic design mm. and I took, and I took, cause you couldn't, you couldn't get an associate's in photography. So I took every photography course available there under a guy named Tom Young, who's still, still teaches uh, part-time. I think he might be at Amherst college now, but Anyway, it was a terrific experience. And then when I got out of GCC, I decided he was encouraging me to go on to a, a four-year art school. And I couldn't quite picture doing that. I was still not a great student. I was a better student at GCC than I was in high school. But so I kind of uh, got into the work world and I was working in camera shops and film, you know, film labs. Uh. And I started, I did that for a few years until I, just kind of try to figure out what kind of photographer I could be and photojournalism, you know, kind of occurred to me because uh, my girlfriend at the time, yeah. she got a job at a little newspaper on Cape Cod and we were living together at the time. So she said, do you want to move to Cape Cod? And I said, sure. So I found a job in a camera store on Cape Cod in Orleans. But then I kind of met the photo editor slash chief photographer at her newspaper the Cape Cotter and, and basically introduced myself and said, I was interested in it. And he said, well, I can't pay you, but here's some film. If you get any good photos for me, I can publish them and you can create a little portfolio of tear sheets and take it from there. So, so, so were you, in, so was that the side that interested you uh, or was it just the photography? In other words, were you interested in doing art photography or journalism? Well, you know, initially I, I was definitely interested in, in art photography and the program at GCC was definitely geared towards creative photography. It wasn't like they gave you assignments to go out and shoot uh, photojournalism assignments. In fact, what I did mostly at GCC was self portraits and it was just, you know, goofy. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it was, it was kind of, uh, just playing around with, with creativity and, and, um, making, you know, slightly abstract weird looking self-portraits occasionally I have my cat in the photo with me and like <laughs> you know and it was just just trying to uh make things that looked cool and, and it wasn't like you know I didn't give much thought to a career in it I wasn't I wasn't driven by that and I, and I couldn't quite figure out what kind of photography but then I got a chance to assist a photographer, a woman named named Debbie Cates, who was a commercial photographer in Greenfield, and and so I she was a customer at the store where I where I worked in Greenfield, and and I said, hey, I'm just curious what you do, and if I could ever help you, I just want to learn, you know, and because um, I knew she was someone who did it professionally, yeah. so I I assisted her. And what I got out of it was a lifelong friendship uh, with Debbie and and her husband, Mitch, Anthony, but, you know, and their wonderful children. But I basically figured out at that time, commercial photography was not for me. I, I felt like 
she was a very detail oriented and, and would obsess over the littlest details and work on a, on a single photo for two hours just to make sure she had everything right. And I thought that's, that's just not for me. I don't know if I have the, the brain for that. And when I got to, when we moved to Cape Cod, I, I started thinking about photojournalism and I, well, I had started to think about it a little bit in Greenfield and I even did a few assignments for the town crier newspaper, which was a tiny little uh, free, free weekly. And, but you know, I didn't know anything about it. And then, but the more I did it, the more I liked it. And that's how I got into photojournalism. So at the Cape Cotter, I started eventually got good enough so that they, they offered to pay me 50 bucks a day on my day off from the camera store to create uh, feature photos and shoot assignments and feature photos, like anything that you can find out in the community just happening. Like, so if you're driving by and someone's painting their boat, you know, and there's a nice sunset behind them or something, you know, you can make a photo of that. And it's that random. Oh yeah, it's totally random. So feature photos in the newspaper are pretty much always random unless it's an event. So they would send me to like the, you know, county fair, for instance. So that was an event and they they were looking for photos from that event, but it was also, you know, coverage, like story coverage. But photographers, when they don't have something, news photographers, when they don't have a specific assignment, are just driving around with a camera on the passenger seat and they're looking for photos. Oh, that's really funny. So I, you know, and I would get, I wasn't great at that, but I got better at it. And, you know, you would always be looking, you'd always have a camera, you'd always keep it loaded with film, you know, and never in the trunk because by the time you, you know, saw it, got out, got your camera, loaded it with film, the moment's probably passed, you know. And so that's that's part of what I learned. But I also had to, you know, learn to make an interesting photo out of a really boring thing. Like <laughs> town meeting. I mean I got I got sent to cover town meeting in tiny little towns on Cape Cod. So that's and then, you know, that's in terms of the progression. I eventually moved back to Western Mass to freelance and I had a pretty decent portfolio by then enough to put a book together and show editors. So I came back here and I talked to the editor of the Springfield Union News and Sunday Republican now just called the Springfield Republican. And I started freelancing for them pretty frequently. And then they, they hooked me up with, or, or at least connected me with the editor photo editor for the Associated Press in Boston. So then I started doing freelance assignments for the Associated Press out out in Western Mass when they had something out in my way. So that's that's kind of, you know, where... So they, so they get word of something and they just, like, send you out to it? Is that how that works? It could be breaking news, yeah. So if a plane crashes in the woods, you know, in southern Vermont, they might call you and say, can you go up there and see what you can get? This happens less and less these days just because, you know, the whole, the whole business is shrunk. And, yeah, I was going to uh, ask about that. Yeah. But at the time in the uh, 90s is around the time that the film to digital change was starting to happen in the uh, late 90s. And so I would, uh, I would shoot assignments and 
Sometimes it was a profile of someone they were writing about. So it was a prearranged like portrait where I showed up to someone's house and they were expecting me and I made a portrait of that person profile of, of someone, you know, I, I did, uh, I did all kinds of, you know, different assignments. Sometimes it was sports. I used to cover UMass basketball, UMass football oh, Okay. for the Associated Press. And I would actually drive my film to like CVS. CVS had an in-store in photo lab and I would ask them just to develop the negatives and hand me the uncut roll of negatives so that it really only took about 10, 15 minutes to get that done because they would put it through the machine, come out dry on the other end. Oh, wow. They would just roll it and, and throw it into a paper bag and hand it to me. So then I would take them home and uh, scan. I would, I would look at the negatives in a light box, over a light box, and then scan the, the negatives into my computer and then email the images to the, to the desk. Oh, that's wild. That's like just at that point where like half of that technology is really good and available, but that you're still on film. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call it really good, but <laughs> um, it did work. You know, the, the Kodak, we, we, the, the standard scanner was a Kodak film scanner, which was this big, hulking, noisy uh, desktop unit, um, which made a pretty, by today's standards, a pretty low res uh, scan of the negative and then inverted all the colors so that you could pull it into Photoshop and write a caption and crop it if you needed to. And, you know, it was very basic and it was very, very slow, you know, to send an image sometimes would take several minutes, you know, like, yeah. and it was a very low res, you know, image. So you had to sometimes had to shrink them down so that they were, the file itself was very compressed and small, just so just so you could get it through quickly right. on a dial-up connection. Oh God! <laughs> Dee, ding ding. Yeah, yeah. So you it kind was, of surfed out that whole uh, analog to digital, but also the newspaper to whatever it's becoming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to believe, but I mean, I've been doing this photog. I've been doing photography in really photojournalism for 27 years. Yeah. So I started full time in 93 or 94. I can't, I'd have to sit down and figure that out. But so it's even longer than that, really. So, you know, math isn't my best subject. But anyway, it's been a long time and I've done, yeah, I've, I've started developing black and white film by hand. And now, of course, everything I do is, is digital. Everything I do for work is is digital. I still own a couple of film cameras, but I haven't played them with them in a while. Would you have to go back to developing your own at this point? There's no CVS Quick Ones anymore, is there? Um, I think they still do. Some some places still have them because you know customers, especially people who don't own computers, they just hang on to their film cameras. So you can still buy film and you can still develop oh, wow. film prints made. It's just not as easy to find. And, you know, film is still around as an artist's medium. So, you know, a lot of photographers, fine art photographers still shoot film because it's like using, you know, oil paints versus illustrating on an iPad with a digital pen or something. You know, it's it's a different medium. So 
I think, you know, film still exists and printing and darkrooms and all that still exists, but, but they exist mostly as an artist's medium. So, you know, if you wanted to shoot film and develop it yourself, you could absolutely do that. Or you can shoot film and send it to a lab and have it processed for you and digitize, or you can have prints made or whatever you want. So I don't do that, but I still kind of fantasize about doing that because the process of shooting pictures with a film camera is much different and your eyes are, are you spent with a digital camera. You spend a lot of time looking at the, at the back of your camera. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Talk a little bit about more about that. Cause that's kind of the creativity piece, although I'm sure you do other stuff too, which we can talk about, but what's the difference? What, what, what makes that difference? Well, I mean, I think the, the process of, of making pictures is, has been made so much easier with digital. So you see the results immediately upon looking at the back of your camera. The problem with that is that you are looking at the back of your camera and you're not looking out at your, the world that you're supposed to be capturing. So now like when I shoot weddings, you know, and weddings are now a big part of my business and and how I pay my bills. So I'm supposed to be observing like a journalist uh, would, you know, and looking for moments and capturing moments and the temptation is really to look, to shoot something and then immediately look down to see if you got it. The problem with that really is that you lose kind of that faith in yourself. So when you shoot film, when you had to shoot film, you just, you just had to get it right in the camera Mm. Um, and you knew that you had to have it right. So the, if you know, and if you, as long as you were in within a, a stop or two, you could screw up, but if you, as long as you didn't screw up too badly, you could still salvage the image. So if your image was a little bit underexposed, that's fixable in, in uh, Photoshop or printing. But with, with digital now, you can see immediately. So you can shoot and then adjust and then shoot again and adjust some more. The problem is, you know, that you kind of get in the habit of doing that and, and, and I still struggle with that because I'm better off, you know, trusting my instincts and, and, and looking out into the world, the, the, the people that are around me and the moments that are happening. And, and if I look down and I get kind of sucked into reviewing my work, right. it takes you out of the observing, the observing part of, of the job. That's a very interesting unintended consequence. Totally. And it's, and it's kind of, uh, it's not good. <laughs> for the rest of us, for the rest of us, that like totally makes it so that our pictures aren't absolute garbage. But for people who know what they're doing, it's an actual danger. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it is helpful, but it's kind of <laughs> like, it's almost like with your phone, you know, if you have kids and you, you're tempted to like check Twitter or look at Facebook while you're taking care of your kids, you know, it's not the end of the world if you do that, but probably you're better off doing that after they go to bed. So with the camera, I kind of try to treat it like that, where I try not to get sucked into looking at the results and checking the results until I have a moment to actually where it's safe for me to sort of take a break and look at the camera. And, you know, I, I, try, I try to be good about that because I don't want to miss things you know, because my head is down yeah, and I'm looking at pictures. So 
and and you really you you really have to you know keep your eyes open and and move around and look around in order to capture things and if you stand there and you're and you're constantly you know reviewing yeah. those things there are certain pictures that you know you had something special and you kind of just want to confirm that you got it right um so so i will i will sometimes do that yeah <laughs> But, but yeah, it definitely affects the way that you shoot. And I think that some people still shoot film or choose to shoot film partly because of it's a different creative process. Oh, that's very interesting. And do you, when you do things like wedding photos, do you find that there's a pressure to like art them up in some way? I just saw a little video of uh, the backstage of a couple who have an umbrella and the, the pictures, it's, it's at night and there was a flash from behind. So it's the two of them with this rain on the umbrella and the backstage video is this guy throwing the water up so that the, <laughs> so that yeah. the picture is super arty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a very popular move with, uh, with couples and flash. And... You need a team at that point. Yeah. yeah. The thing is I, I try to avoid that type of picture in my work and most of the clients that hire me are hiring me because of the way that I work and that basically because I don't do stuff like that. Uh I wondered, I wondered if it was gimmicky or artistic. I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I think it's pretty, pretty gimmicky, but it's not like, those pictures aren't sometimes really beautiful and striking. Right. Um, I think that they are, but the process of doing, of making those pictures takes a long time. It's a very staged, yeah. it's not an authentic picture. It's not an, a real moment that basically that moment wouldn't be happening if the photographer wasn't there making it happen. Right. So I generally speaking, try to avoid that. There's a certain amount of that that happens throughout, well, not throughout the day. There's a certain amount of, ha- of posing that has to happen in order to get certain pictures uh, made. So I'm fine with that. And, most, and I usually talk all that through with my clients ahead of time so that we kind of, they kind of know what to expect when it comes to uh, posing for pictures and how much time I'll need and when we're going to do that. But, you know, some couples in the wedding party, for instance, will, after the ceremony, will go to a second location and spend a full hour making really, you know, dramatic posed mm. pictures. Mm. You know, it's just that that process is not that fun for me. And I, I think my clients generally would rather go to their cocktail hour and party with their family and friends. <laughs> And my job is to shadow them and capture those moments, you know, that are, that are real. Yeah. And, and generally speaking, my clients are people who, who really uh, prefer that experience. And a lot of them have been in, in wedding parties where they, you know, had to suffer through an hour of posing and dramatic <laughs> lighting and, and driving to different locations and, and the whole time, just desperately wanting to get to the party. Right. Get to the food. Yeah, and the drink. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is usually what's the, the real pull. So, you know, I talk to my clients uh, about that ahead of time. And I, 
And I sort of kind of put it out there on my website as well that, hey, you know, this is the this is the type of experience that I'm trying to provide for my clients. Um, and it's really about enjoying the day and not not, you know, spending it being posed at every every few minutes so that every moment is picture perfect. I just feel like those pictures lack authenticity and the experience of making them is just not that fun. Well, so so that's interesting. Yeah, you mentioned the experience of of making them being fun. Is do you find that you have time to do the kind of creative work you want, or do you aspire to? Is is there any like projects that you kind of have on the on the horizon that you want to do, or that you're doing? Um, I do have one project that I've been working on. Over the the winter time, I started doing some photography of my wife. So I've I've been photographing her with digital projections. Basically, she's pose she poses nude, and I project images on her, and the results are kind of dreamy and strange. And sometimes you're not quite sure what you're looking at. And that that was a project that just kind of occurred to me because we were given a, a digital projector and I was playing with it. And I thought, you know, this might be kind of interesting. And she back before we had kids, I used to photograph her a lot and she always really enjoyed it. And it was, it was fun. She just, you know, liked being part of the sort of process. And we would talk about different ideas. And then we didn't do that for a long time. But our kids are older now. And you know, the wintertime is the slower time of the year for me. So we did this, um, we started doing this project and I've, and I've been, it's really just begun, begun. And I created like a separate Instagram account for this, for these pictures. Oh, cool. Uh, And, you know, they're, they're pretty, I, I really like them. And I, and I think when I look back at what I've done though, it mostly makes me want to try different things. So I'm, I, I want to take the projector out into nature and use it out, use it out in the woods and try different stuff. And I want to take pictures of her and then project it onto natural objects. Cause what I've been doing mostly is photographing patterns in nature and, and using those images to project on her. Uh-huh. And I kind of want to flip flop that and photograph her and then project those images onto nature patterns and kind of see what I can get. So that, that's, that's really the most creative work that I've done in, in years. Cause you know, when you get busy with, with work and making a living, you oftentimes don't have the, the time or the creative energy or just the energy period right. to, to do like side projects. But right. This past winter time during the downtime, I really got into that project, and and luckily I have uh, a wife who's willing to help me with it, and the the results I think are are lovely and interesting, and I want to keep at that. You know, we're still going to try and uh, do some stuff in the warm weather since uh, shooting outdoors is not an option. Oh right, 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 right. It's cool that you can co-create. That's lovely. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And would you would you want to eventually put them into like big prints and have a gallery show of something like that? Is that yeah, yeah. A destination? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's it's the type of work you know. I'm proud of the pictures I I do for work and like my wedding photography and other. I have done other kind of side projects, but 
I don't necessarily want to hang them on my wall, you know, so my, my really my ideal, you know, creative work would be something that we would want to hang on our walls. And in this case, we haven't actually printed anything yet, but i definitely want to uh, print and frame some of the work that we did this winter and and hang it in our house. So that to me is kind of an indicator whether it was a success or not, you know, Yeah. because a lot of the pictures that I do for work, you know, I did an assignment for the Boston Globe this morning and, you know, I was happy to get the job and do the, do the pictures. And it was, you know, I got to drive up to Vermont and drive around Mount Snow, but uh, I'm not going to hang those pictures on my wall. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a different thing. It's, it's a different experience and it's a different outcome. And, and, you know, whenever that story comes out, it'll be read and might be of interest to people, but then it kind of fades, you know, so. It's almost like sandcastle work. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels that way. You know, a lot of the day to day journalism, uh, photojournalism, especially if you're working for like a small town, you know, newspaper, a lot of those stories really come and go quickly and fade quickly. Hmm. Some of the pictures that I made in Washington when I was based in Washington certainly feel like they have a longer shelf life. Like I photographed a lot of historic events like Obama's inauguration and for both inaugurations, but especially the first one. Oh, cool. And those pictures I'm really glad that I have. And, you know, those I feel like will be important for years as yeah, part of historical. History. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun to be a part of that. Wow. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of nine to thrive. Next time, we'll have the second half of my talk with photographer Matthew Cavanaugh. If you want info like Matthew's Instagram links or to listen to other episodes, go to working9to thrivecom and follow us on social media.